Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm John Fensterwald. And I'm Zadie Stavely. Lewis Friedberg is away this week. It's great to have you co-hosting, Zadie. Thanks, John. So on Wednesday, October 30th in Sacramento, EdSource and the Partnership for Children and Youth will sponsor a conference on social and emotional learning. The conference will look at how seven California school districts have worked to make social-emotional practices and concepts part of their school life and culture across both school and after school. And we happen to have the keynote speaker, Tim Shriver, on the line. Tim is chairman of the Special Olympics, founded by his mother, Eunice Kennedy Shriver. He's also the brother of the journalist and former California First Lady, Maria Shriver. He's a leading advocate in the social and emotional learning movement. A quarter century ago, he founded CASEL, the Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning, which is a leading source of high-quality knowledge and skills for educators who want to bring social-emotional skills to their schools, which Shriver calls making the heart the engine for the head. Welcome, Tim. Thanks for having me. Let me ask you, we hear the term social-emotional learning all the time. What is it and why is it important? At a very basic level, social and emotional learning can be defined as the emotional and social dimensions of development. In other words, the processes, the skills, and the outcomes that come from attending to the emotional development of children and the social development of children. What we're trying to do with social and emotional learning is promote the idea that education is inherently emotional, social, and cognitive. That these dimensions of the child's life, and I dare say of the adults as well, are always in play. Uh, Whether we like it or not, this is the way we as humans learn. And the extent to which we pay attention to them and get good at, at supporting them is the extent to which we practice and implement the best high quality educational strategies. In my view, having been in and around education for the better part of 40 years, I think this is the most opportune time I've seen for us as educators to make significant improvements in the quality of life for children and the quality of learning outcomes for all children. Tim, why have you chosen social and emotional learning to focus your time on? And why do you think it's so critical? I started as a teacher counselor in a program called Upward Bound, doing after school and compensatory education moved to study child development and work with Dr. James Comer on the culture of the school and the relationships with families. All those things pointed me in the same direction, that the big reason why children aren't learning isn't the quality of the textbooks, isn't the time on task, isn't the discipline structures in the school necessarily. It's the fact that so many children do not feel emotionally or socially connected to the content, to the teachers, to the school, to the mission, to their own purpose. So I determined quite a long time ago that the biggest challenge we have in education is the social and emotional challenges of children. And the biggest gains we can make in reducing problems, number one, in promoting purpose and a sense of destiny, if I can almost put it that way, in children, and uh, in improving our pedagogy and improving the basic ways in which we teach. Our best chance to do all of them is to attend effectively to social and emotional issues in a way that promotes better learning better behavior, and a bigger sense of purpose. Tim, I'm curious if you feel you gained some of your insights growing up in the early days of the Special Olympics, which your mom established, seeing how students with disabilities were mistreated and dismissed in the era before the Americans with Disabilities Act. How did it affect your thinking and guide your work today? No one usually asks me that, but I appreciate it. I, I think all of those issues faced by children with special needs 
center on social isolation, emotional isolation, emotional disconnection and disengagement, uh, a lack of using one's relationships or feeling one's relationships are positive and affirming and likely to lead to good outcomes for children. So in some ways, the inclusion movement, I think of as a powerful driver for social and emotional learning because the inclusion movement is fundamentally about ending social isolation, which continues to be an enormous barrier for children with special needs. But I might surprise people in saying this, social isolation is a huge challenge for all kinds of kids. Kids on the upper end of the income spectrum, kids on the lower end, kids on the coast, kids in the heartland. This is a major national challenge now, and social and emotional learning, when done well with evidence-based programs, can be a powerful, powerful tool in responding to it. We're talking to Tim Shriver, an expert in social-emotional learning. Tim, I understand that you also used to be a classroom teacher? Yes. Mm -hmm. Can you share a little bit about your experiences as a classroom teacher and if there were any moments, you know, as a teacher that you saw a certain student struggling or where you noticed that there was a need for more of a social-emotional focus? You don't have time for me to tell you all those stories, but I'll just say that, you know, if you're teaching U.S. history to kids in an urban high school in the United States, when I was doing it in the 80s, the textbook didn't speak very much to their experience. The pictures in the textbook didn't look like them. The stories didn't seem relevant to their own histories. And it was very difficult. I found it very difficult to excite those kids, excite my students about what was in the book. When we went a little bit off the core curriculum and allowed for the exploration of the Amistad Affair, for instance, which was a local story in New Haven, the famous story of the slave rebellion that resulted in the freeing of the Amistad, so to speak, the Amistad captives and in their return home uh, in the pre-Civil War United States. When our students started to get into that story and stories like that, the Harlem Renaissance or other civil rights stories, their interest sparked. And it was very obvious to me that all of a sudden, when people felt socially and emotionally connected to the content, the learner was transformed from a disengaged, reluctant, uh, not very committed learner to a curious, open-minded, purpose-driven learner. Now, in some ways, modifying or diversifying the, the way in which we teach U.S. history doesn't necessarily come under the rubric of social and emotional learning. But that opened my eyes to the power of introducing these themes because when we started then teaching stress management and problem solving and goal setting and consequential thinking and planning and empathy and identity as explicit lessons, we could use those lessons to connect children to the content. You could all of a sudden teach to kill a mockingbird from the point of view of the, not just the emotional experience of Atticus Finch, but the emotional experience you have when reading it and not just the anger or frustration of court systems that work or don't work, but your capacity to set a goal yourself as a sixth grader or an eighth grader. What are your goals about changing the court system or becoming a part of a social justice agenda in the United States? And the material comes alive. When you open the desire of the child to be seen and when you create a trusting environment where relationships matter, content comes alive. Give us an example of what happens in a school where practices are done well. What would someone coming from the outside see? Well, they'd see students, for instance, in ninth grade, learning and practicing how to disagree without being disagreeable. 
They'll learn how to speak their truth, how to have active listening skills, how to repeat and understand the point of view of another person, how to use that point of view to try to advocate for your own point of view, how to do that with respect uh, and with the hope of a problem solution. Now, when we talk about those lessons in high school, what you're going to see is kids in the hall learning how to disagree without being disagreeable. You'll see changes in the lunchroom. You'll see changes on the bus because kids have a common vocabulary. And what you'll also see is a lot of kids saying, hey, adults need to learn this too. And as one of our students and one of our teachers said, I think we need to teach this curriculum on Capitol Hill, not just in the halls of high schools. So you'll see children, schools, families, community-based organizations that develop a common vocabulary when empathy is taught. All of a sudden, at a circle of second graders, again, learning poetry or learning mathematics or learning science, one child struggles, the other child says, I understand how you're feeling, instead of making fun of the child. So you'll see a reduction in bullying and name calling. And you'll see an increase in time on task and in learning outcomes. We're talking to Tim Shriver, an expert in social emotional learning. What kind of policies have you seen in other states that you think California could consider or pay attention to? The big issue from a policy point of view is funding for these social and emotional learning programs, funding for primary prevention. There's so much money spent trying to catch kids doing the wrong thing, catch kids using drugs, catch kids at the risk of dropping out, catch kids who have some risk. The social and emotional learning worldview is we should equip kids to be strong, to be competent, to be connected, to be good learners, start in kindergarten and continue throughout 12th grade. We've got to change the funding formulas that take a lot of that prevention money and put it into social and emotional learning and primary prevention. Secondly, we need a major investment in teachers. Most teachers I know went into the field because they cared about kids, and almost none of the preparation they were given equipped them to understand the development of children. So we need to retrain the staff we have in the field, little by little, but steadily and with evidence-based programs. And we need to revise and, and upgrade the training of teachers in our teacher training institutions in California and around the country. California can and should lead on this, as it has in other ed reform efforts in the past. I think we got to be careful. Cautionary notes on issues around assessment. Yes, we want to evaluate whether these programs work, but we've got to be very, very reluctant to engage in high-stakes testing that would allow people to be punished or kids to be punished or labeled or stigmatized based on social and emotional learning measures. But we can do a lot of good work in measurement, for instance, in school climate. One last question, Tim. What would you say to educators who worry that this is one more thing they have to worry about on top of other layers of things they've had in terms of reforms, or they say, hey, look, I'm empathetic. I connect with my kids. What's new here? First of all, it's not one more thing. It is the thing, number one. Number two, we're not trying to layer things on. We're trying to make our practices better. The person who says, I have empathy, they're in a sense joining the field already. They're saying, it's not about whether or not we do SEL, it's how we do it, right? And so everybody has an SEL curriculum, stated or unstated. The problem is that in most cases, it's unstated and it's not evidence-based. So people will say, well, I shake hands with kids at the door, or I make eye contact, or I do good question and answer sessions. Great, great, that's what I did too as a teacher, I did my best. But here we have now new science and major new evidence and practices that are working. 
that advance these goals for kids and for teachers as well. And I believe, this might sound a little bit rash, but I believe it's irresponsible for educators to ignore what evidence is showing us around how these practices can be effective. This should be good news for educators. It's reminding us of what we got into the field for, to help children grow and become the best they can be. This is a field designed to help educators do that. That was Tim Shriver, a pioneer of social-emotional learning and chairman of Special Olympics International. And as we mentioned, he'll also be the keynote speaker at a conference in Sacramento that EdSource is co-hosting on October 30th with the Partnership for Children and Youth. At the conference, seven school districts will be sharing how they work to create a more positive learning environment across school, after school, and summer. To get tickets for the event, check out our website, edsource.org. Before we go, we should note the final action of Governor Newsom on a big education bill we've been following, and that is he signed the bill that mandates the later start of middle and high schools. That caught me by surprise, Zadie. How about you? Yeah, it did surprise me a little bit, John. I wasn't completely sure what Newsom was going to do about that bill. I know that it was a little controversial in uh, the legislature, particularly because of the idea that it was taking away local control from the districts. But I know that also it seems like the science pretty much speaks for itself, that teenagers need more sleep and also go to sleep at a later time and need to wake up later. It's not like they're asking schools to start at 10 a.m. They're asking middle schools to start no earlier than 8 a.m. and high schools to start no earlier than 8.30. Right. I noticed one commenter to EdSource referred to a high school that started the zero period at 6.30 and classes at 7.30. That's uh, certainly before my time. (laughs) I'm not sure I could make it to class. Right. And Governor Brown vetoed the same bill last year. And as you mentioned, he cited local control. I think that his cherished subsidiarity that Governor Brown always talked about didn't quite register as it did with Jerry Brown. It will be interesting in the future to see where he draws a line between local control and measures like this, where he thinks there's good state policy, in this case backed by pediatricians, and drew the line on the state should act here. Well, they'll have three years to implement it, right, John? Right. And there's a lot of contracts that need to be renegotiated, bus routes taken care of, and The adults need to get used to this. That wraps it up for this week's podcast. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and EdSource's own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Zadie Stavely. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thank you, Zadie, for joining us this week. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. 